Welcome back to another episode of Caught Looking, a baseball podcast hosted by myself, Max Greenfield, and Ryan Garcia. Today is a very special episode. Our first ever guest is on, and we are going to be joined by Eno Saris of The Athletic. Um, we hope you guys are going to enjoy this conversation. Um, I feel that people will learn a lot from Eno, and uh, hope you guys enjoy the uh, interview. We are joined by Eno Saris of The Athletic. Eno, thank you so much for being here today. No problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, um, you know, just kind of how has your day been? How, you know, what's that you just said you just finished up a run and everything, you know, summer out there in Palo Alto is pretty nice right now, right? Yeah, but I'm having dreaded internet issues. So it's been been a day of me versus the computers and I never like it. That's fair. That's that's not a fun com- that's that's never fun to deal with the internet. Whenever the internet goes bad, it, I guess it just shows how privileged I am that when the internet gets frustrating, I'm just like frustrated by it. It's like, man, like 30 years ago, this was not this was like an everyday occurrence. <laughs> yeah, I actually I grew, I grew up in the beginning of that with the beep boop beep. Yeah, exactly. Like I remember like waiting that. for the the phone to connect you to the internet. <laughs> yeah, I I remember that growing up as well. Um, so we just have a couple of questions, you know, just to see, um, your thoughts on sort of all areas of baseball. Obviously we'll talk about pitching and everything like that as well. Uh, Ryan, why don't you go ahead and lead us off? Yeah. So not an expert on early day internet, but I do have, uh, this is a question I've been thinking about for a while actually. Um, and it's, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about like fan and, you know, private and public perception. What do you think is the biggest misconception that you frequently see regarding how fans and the media think a baseball front office operates? You know, uh, I was thinking about this on my run and, you know, there's there's a few things I think, there's some misconceptions about how much money teams make. And this is actually related to what I, I think teams are really, really big. And there are so many people that work for every team that you don't even think of. I mean, the, the people doing the grounds at, at, at IA, you know, the well, in the Dominican public uh, who are just doing staffing concerns, uh, just like all of the different coaches and roving coordinators and directors in the front office, of, you know, oh man, I got to work for a team. I'd be in the inner circle in the room making a decision and be like, oh yeah, we should trade this guy and we should trade for that guy. And, you know, there's probably in most teams four to ten, maybe four to eight people in the entire organization that get to be in on those conversations. And the other, I don't know, 500 people are tasked with the kind of mundane day to day work that it takes to to make a team good. And now, you know, there are obviously roles within that are really fun. I'd love to be a pitching coordinator or director of player development or something like that. And so, you know, even without making big decisions on that level, you can have a great effect on the game. But I would just say that, like, there are a lot of jobs in baseball that are just like, you know, ticket sales you know? Um, and uh, and aren't uh, necessarily in the room to make the big decisions. 
do you think that you know you just said there's basically you know very finite number of people that are in the room for those decisions do you think that people like overestimate the amount of power that they have too at the end of the day i mean everything has to run through your owner essentially right so you know it's very the owner is obviously one of those people in the meeting but i mean the agm the gm like they're just kind of doing what the owner wants right yeah i mean i think that's a that's an added aspect is you know there are there are definitely owners with uh, their finger you know on the button and uh a little bit more involved um you know and some of those are in a bad way i think you know from gathering info over the years you know some of the normal characters come to mind like Artie moreno um, may have been pretty heavily involved in that Albert Pujols deal. And if you think about being a GM under him, you're kind of like, ah, oh, you know, we ran the aging. Doesn't look like this, he's going to age that well. You know, we have some intel. Maybe he's older than he says, you know, <laughs> and like, you know, this might not end well. And Artie Marino's like, but he's the best free agent out there. Go get him. I don't care. Um, so there's some of that. Then there's Steve Cohen who's willing to spend, but also maybe a little bit more savvy than Moreno. Um, you know, there's different, but there, that is definitely a concern. There's, there's owners that only want to take money out of the team and, and, and don't necessarily want to invest it. And other owners that, uh, mostly leave uh, the front office alone. So yeah, that's, that's one of the aspects of it too, is that even when you're in that four to six, you may not have full control over everything. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, kind of going in a different direction. You talked about, you know, being a director of pitching or a pitching coordinator would be really cool or director of player development. You've written a lot about certain player development topics. Um, you know, mainly one of your main cases of that is Alex Cobb, who's kind of known for going to driveline, working with weighted balls, working with plyo balls. We've seen the teams that adopt those philosophies tend to have great success, but obviously not every team has adopted it. Why do you think there's still some pushback on those modern player development methods? I think they're hard. It's hard work. Um, if you think about it, having so I think the the, the sort of modern performance player development uh, framework is that you have KPIs, you have key performance indicators, and you make decisions based on that. You make decisions based on something like a stuff grade or a bat path grade, and you say this guy deserves to be a double A not because he has a 300 batting average, but because he's done X, Y, and Z process wise. And you make decisions in coaching and you say, oh, you know what? We want to increase the stuff plus of all of our pitchers. In order to do that, we have to have coaches who believe in stuff plus. They're going to say, hey, uh, this curveball needs to have this X or this Y in order to get better. Then we can track everything. You track everything. You make decisions based on data. You, you fire and hire coaches based on data. That's modern. And when you think about all that stuff I just said, that's really hard to do. It's really hard to implement. You have to have a really good uh system in place in terms of you know stuff like software and uh and internal data and so now you're talking about we need to have a really good software guy we need to have good data engineers we need to have good uh analysts we need to have people who are working on the user interface of our thing we need to we need to really and we need to upgrade this uh internal systems every two or three years just to keep up with the joneses you know this is a lot of lot of work and the, the flip side, the sort of older school, it's a lot easier. You say things like, you know, this guy is 17, but he just had like, you know, he just had a 500 slugging in, 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 in low A. So whatever, let's, let's push him up, you know. 
Um, and, uh, and you say things like, you know, uh, oh, well, this guy just had a three ERA and double A. He's going to make it in the big leagues. He'll be fine. Don't worry about his, you know, awful, uh, you know, shape of his fastball. And I did just describe one organization with two examples, but uh, I'm not going to name them. Uh, it's just easier to do things uh, the other way because you don't have to have as many systems in place. You don't have to have all the data in place. You don't have to have as many people working on it. You can uh, just sort of go by scouting and uh, sort of, you know, just the eye test, I guess, all the time. And I would just say, I think it's easier. <laughs> That's why. Some pushback is that people... People try to argue like you get caught too much in the data and that can lead you to bad decisions. Do you think that's a valid argument or what would be your counter to the people who say, you know, we hear it a lot as Yankee fans that the Yankees are too analytical, which is something I completely disagree with and think is nonsense. But what is your counter argument to people who say like it's possible for a team to go too far into modern player development or too far into the data? Sure. And in fact, uh, I, I think there's a, a small small thing that maybe the uh, the Yankees could have done uh, wrong in their player development that uh, is relevant to this. So uh, they are like number one in ex-WOBA, you know, sort of expected outcomes. They're like number two or three in uh, all the exit velocity stats. Uh, and they're like number two or three in all the chase rate stats. So they build hitters that hit the ball really hard and don't chase outside the zone. And you would say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, a lot of the guys they produced have had strikeout problems. And if you look at bat speed alone in a vacuum, it is negatively correlated with whiffs inside the zone. So, you know, if you do focus fully on one metric, sometimes it's to the exclusion of another metric. And so that's a data reason that the Yankees might have made some interesting decisions that like they're the opposite of the Guardians, right? The Guardians make a ton of contact. They build a bunch of guys with a great strikeout rate. They can't hit the ball hard. If you could smush the Guardians, and the Yankees together, you'd have a superhuman team. But, you know, what I think that is a better example of sort of writ large about like, can you be too focused on some data? Yeah. I mean, I think there's obviously room for feel. Um, and that's that's one of the trickiest things is hiring good coaches that understand the numbers, but also have good feel. And then lastly, I think the, the biggest thing in player development that's so hard and it's really hard to capture. There's a stupid catchphrase for it, which is uh, uh, growth mindset. But here's what's so difficult about a growth mindset. If I'm building a player development, and I'm trying to tell all these cats, all these coaches, all these players, this is what we should do. We believe in stuff plus. We believe in this bat path grade. Coach to this because we believe in it. And I'm also kind of saying this is better than what other people have. And this is better than what we used to have. Right. What I'm also maybe implying is in five years, we might know better. <laughs> so I'm giving you the best of what we have now. And I need you to trust me that this is the best of what we have now. But I'm going to leave that door open a crack. Because what we have now is better than what we had five years ago. And what we have five years from now is going to be better than what we have right now. So we need to sort of keep learning while also trusting that the best way to, to get things done is to actually have numbers attached to them and make systematic decisions. Because if you don't make systematic decisions, you're guessing. So, yes, there's some amount of guesswork at data because I'm going to say five years from now, I'm going to know more. So you know, I am sort of guessing, but it's an educated guess. It's a systematic guess. It's a 
it's a better way of doing things because at least you can track and five years from now when you say oh we know better you can actually point back to right now and say look we used to think that this was the most important thing max ev we used to think max ev was the most important thing but we've discovered it's this new thing and that's what we're preaching now so it's a very difficult type you know sort of line to walk but it's important to do it in a systematic way i think yeah, and you know, I, I guess kind of playing off of the looking into the future a little bit here, we do a segment on our podcast called Seam Shifted Takes. It's where we essentially have the audience give us hot takes for us to discuss. And one of our viewers, Steven, who's at GoCubs49 on Twitter, gave us the take that the league average velocity reaches 96 miles per hour by the end of the decade. Where do you think velocity is heading league-wide over the decade? And do you think that number is an accurate uh, prediction? Or, or what would you give as your prediction? Oh, that's spicy. I thought, you know, for a second that I saw uh, max pitch velocity slow down. Uh, there was a less of an increase year over year for a while in max pitch velocity. So I thought that we were, you know, heading towards, you know, uh, 102 is maybe just the limit of what we can coach pitch pitchers to do. Um, for a while, we didn't see much more than 102. Now we're seeing 103s and 104s. <laughs> Uh, and we're pushing past that. Um, plus, you know, sitting, we're sitting 94 and if 104 is the, the max, then we can have many more people sit closer to 104. Um, so 96, I would have thought it wasn't attainable, but I, I think, uh, I think they might be right. I think it might be attainable. Do you think that you know, you talked about how we were gotten closer, like now guys are throwing 104. I mean, Joanne Duran does that like frequently. Do you think, you know, a criticism uh -huh. of it is that people are trying too hard to throw that hard. We've seen a rise in pitcher injuries this year. You know, do you think that max effort velocity is part of that rise in pitcher injuries and part of that basically guys don't pitch as much as they used to because of that? Oh, Yeah. So imagine, imagine being in that in that seat as a pitcher and hearing hearing them talk about you're going to sit four miles an hour below your max and you're just watching the dollar signs go away on your next deal and you're just like yeah you know like, the coach is like oh man we're all going to lose. <laughs> there's no that, benefit to it, right? I mean, the benefit could be that maybe you reduce stress on elbows, maybe you'd reduce some injuries. The thing is, you'd still have injuries, a because we're we're producing these. Uh, we're, we're pushing these 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 players to the maximum, and you know we fixate on pitchers' arms, but there's Achilles in basketball, there's ACLs in football and basketball. You know there are other ways that other athletes are being pushed to their maximum and suffering injury for it. Um, and the other thing is that while we are pushing pitchers to their maximum in terms of velo, we are also spending tremendous amounts of resources on biomechanics in order to try and figure out how to do that by putting less stress on the elbow. So there are lots of people in this health arms race that are spending a lot of time being like, how can we do this better mechanically? And so, you know, I, I've tend to think that yes, injuries uh, may be high for pitchers, uh, but, uh, and it is related to velo, but a, the cat's out the bag and B we're also doing a lot of work to try and uh, reduce the injuries. For the record, I agree with everything you said, I, but <laughs> I feel like people would want to hear your opinion on that. So, um, <laughs> but speaking about velocity, you know, you helped create stuff plus, um, and you know, you use it. It's the, 
it is the first thing I go to whenever a guy makes a debut or anything like that. The first thing I check is stuff plus. I think it's arguably one of the best uh, statistics in all of baseball. What was the thought process behind creating it? And then where do you want to see improvements for the metric along the way? I, I grew up in Atlanta. Uh, I came to this country uh, in 1986 and grew up in Atlanta and saw uh, Maddox, Glavin, and Smoltz as I was growing up. And I just thought, you know, these guys are so different. And how can I analyze, you know, a, a, a sport? How can I think about a sport where, you know, these pitchers are so different? They're so good. And, you know, so then a lot of my work over the time has been, you know, breaking pitchers down into components. You know, I did a lot of work for a while about looking at just the results of each pitch type and saying, oh, man, this guy gets a 15 percent whiff rate on his changeup. Why doesn't he throw him more often or this or that? You know, and uh, I realized when I read a piece from Jeremy Greenhouse is now in the front office for the Cubs um, in 2008 about something he called stuff. Um, I realized that's what I was trying to get at was the process underneath the pitch and how can we separate a pitcher, truly separate a pitcher and this process from the results. Cause that's the diff most difficult thing about pitching is that, you know, it's a one on baseball is a one-on-one -on -one sport until that ball's in play. And uh, you know, for a long time we thought, well, the pitcher has no control over balls in play, but that didn't sit right with me because we know the pitchers have control over ground balls and fly balls. Right. So in some ways they have control over balls in play. Um, and so, you know, just the, 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 just the process of analyzing pitchers, analyzing pitchers, there's different as Smoltz and, and Glavin and, and, uh, and Maddox, and then getting to, uh, you know, this point in data where we have machine learning that can finally take different aspects of a pitch and, and relate them faster than I could. If I just told you, you know, I did a lot of work early on. I was like, Oh, good velo and ride on the fastball that's good you know good velo and drop on the slider that's good except when you start bringing release point oh well you know release point you know release point matters and release point velo and movement matter and sometimes they matter in different ways well machine learning is really good at just being like ah yes this is matters more together over here and matters more together over here and i wish that you know i like educating people and i wish i could use stuff plus more in the future uh, to have some takeaways, show some maybe feature interactions where I can say, this pitch is good because of the interaction between his release point and his movement and show them in a graph, show them in a way that they can say, aha, that's something I can look for when I watch for, when I watch baseball. I try to do that, but as a black box, Stuff Plus is limited in that way. Um, so that's one thing I would like from Stuff Plus is, is better visualizations to help people understand what's going on under the hood. Um, and then other things, I think some biomechanical um, data would be good in it. I mean, I think right now change-ups are one of the weakest parts of Stuff Plus, and I think just putting arm speed in would improve that that greatly just because the change-up, you really have to sell off the fastball. And if you're babying that change-up to get more movement or slow it down, then hitters can see that and, and Stuff Plus can't. Yeah, I was working with a kid the other day in his bullpen. I kept telling him to stop babying the change-up, so... Uh, you got to throw it hard. <laughs> you got to throw it hard. Yeah, you're right. Like it, it, it is interesting that you talked about how important arm speed kind of like a big thing to include in all the pitches though, right? Because the better you can relate it to whatever your primary pitch is for most guys that are fastball, hypothetically, that would help 
with the other pitches. Like if you try to yeah. baby a slider, it's still not going to be very good. Right, right, right. Yeah. So I guess arm speed differential or something, but um, yeah, for the fastball though, arm speed is really highly correlated with velo. So <laughs> yes, I don't know exactly. how much we'll learn off of that one. <laughs> Go ahead, Ryan. Yeah. And you know, so, I mean, I've hit more people with changeups and I've gotten whiffs in my very short high school career. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, no, it turns out being five, eight and not having a good pregame routine for throwing does not yield good results on the mound. Um, but you know, another pitch that kind of has, I mean, it essentially has taken over baseball over the last two years is the sweeper, right? And in 2022, we saw uh, it, I mean, more than doubled in usage from 2021. What pitch do you think could follow the same trajectory as the sweeper in the near future? Um, and why do you think it would? I think that, you know, I just, I just admitted that changeups aren't the best aspect of stuff plus, and, um, you know, maybe teams have better numbers, but I've heard, you know, privately some, some similar things with it from within teams. So that I would guess that, the next innovation comes in the changeup space. And uh, I like that you have that seam shifted takes uh, aspect. So I, I, my seam shifted take is that there's still more to mine uh, from seam shifted wake and it's going to be in the changeup space. I don't know if it's just some sort of hybrid cutter, fosh, like a, 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 a split finger, fosh, uh, some sort of new way of catching the wake. Uh, on changeups, something that is easily teachable to people who have not been able to to learn changeups in the past. So, um, if you could find a way to teach all these guys that are fastball, slider, curveball, uh, and easy to throw changeup uh, that caught you know seam shifted and 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 went and, and went off in another direction, uh, they'd all be better for it. So, I know that some teams have a dedicated seam shifted wake expert on staff. You know. Uh, but I would guess that that is about four teams that are like that. And so we're going to see something catch on. I mean, one of the reasons that the sweeper caught on the way it did was that uh, it, one team did it. The Dodgers and Yankees were pretty far out in front, maybe the Mariners. And once they did it, there was a big copycat. So some of the, the media is compliant in this too. So they, we need to have a changeup that has a funky new name. Uh, someone has to write about it and uh, some team has to have like two or three guys that do it and have success. And then the next season in the spring, everybody's going to be throwing the splasher or whatever it is. <laughs> I, I'm so thrilled that you used the, the seam shifted take there. That, that, that really, that really <laughs> warmed my heart. Uh, I definitely agree with you. I love changeups. Like I'm so, I, I think they're such a fascinating pitch. Maybe it's because when I did play, I could throw a really good one, so it made me bias. But um, <laughs> you, you kind of talked about that—that that you, you know, there there are four teams that have like this knowledge of seam shifted wake that they try to put a guy on the staff with that. I think I could probably guess which teams they are, but I, I won't. But do you think that in the future you're going to see more teams that just hire people who are just really, really good at specific areas of pitch design just to have on the staff? Um, I mean, the team that that has done it uh, is not one that you expect. So uh, the one that I know for sure. And then I know that, you know, the Dodgers created uh, the sweeper. You know, that's a seam shift to wake pitch, too. So I know that they have tremendous amounts of uh, of investment in like Ph.D. level uh, consultants with the team. So the Do the Yankees. So I would guess the Dodgers and Yankees and then the, 
the Mariners taught basically every minor leaguer the sweeper. <laughs> so they just taught every pitcher the sweeper. So either they were just copycatting or they were early in on it too. I just, uh, I'm doing a quick search for something. It's silly, but uh, this is change-ups uh, pitch type values by team. Uh, I thought I would do this just to see if any name popped out. Number one is Atlanta. Uh, they have Mike Fast, uh, who is uh, someone I admire greatly that helped uh, create the Houston Astros as we know them now uh, and is uh, definitely a pitch movement guru. So I wouldn't be surprised if they've figured something out there. Milwaukee is second. And I've always found Milwaukee to be uh, impressive in this in this way, because, you know, when I started out, I didn't know if Woodruff's fastball had good shape or not. And the sort of journey through stuff plus was to figure out that, yes, Woodruff has a good two plane uh, uh, fastball. I thought it might be stuck in between. It's not a four seam. It's not a sinker. What is it? It's a really good fastball. And, uh, it, you know, so I think that Milwaukee being up there and then Tampa being third, that's an interesting group for me. Atlanta, Milwaukee and Tampa are teams that I think well of uh, when it comes to uh, developing. Now, this is a major league number. So that's acquisitions. Those are people they've signed in free agency. You know, that's not exactly the same as maybe looking at this on a minor league level, but uh, there's three candidates for you, three different teams that, that might be doing something interesting in the changeup space. Whenever I hear Tampa top in something pitching, I usually think that like there's something going on there. They're, yeah, they're, exactly. Like they're, I think they're first in like in zone, uh, like off speed percentage this year and which Kyle Bodie's like, yeah, of course that makes sense. Uh, so that always leads me, whatever I kind of have the motto if Tampa does something, you know, forward thinking with pitching, you should probably pay attention. Um, yeah, other than maybe acquiring a bunch of injury prone guys, you know, that's, that's a Tampa thing that, correct. you know, yeah. tends to, they, to bite them in the butt every year. They, they do like their injury prone players. Uh, I want to end on, on this kind of topic. Uh, we, you and I have kind of discussed this a little bit in the past, but Sports journalism and sports media, they've changed a lot over the years. You know, fans have a lot more say and, you know, and ever before in the kind of, you know, product that gets put out to them. You know, we've kind of been losing things to the fury of the hot take and everything like that. You know, why did we get this change? And where do we go from here to kind of, you know, combat this like sort of need for the hot take? Man, I don't know, dude. Uh, I think it's only going to get worse because, um, you know, did you know that like our attention span has gone down like 19 seconds since the iPhone was invented? So I believe that. <laughs> yeah, that's like collective thing. So I look at things like TikTok, and I'm like, I have a I have a friend who is a uh, he's like a a, a climate change and and, and uh, global rights lawyer at and he uses TikTok. And I'm always really surprised that how much information you can get across in two minutes. So I'm, I'm going to answer and say, I don't think that we're going into longer form. I don't think we're going into longer words and more in-depth pieces, uh, but that on some level, it's on any communicator or educator to be able to communicate things quickly. Um, and I think that just means understanding your subject matter and uh, being able to uh, say it in, in normal terms, layman's terms and explain things quickly. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's partially why I love the podcast form because um, yeah, you can get into deeper things, but you're not, it's not like the deep dive of all the media forms. It's more of a, 
you know, conversational. Uh, and you can tell pretty quickly if someone doesn't know their stuff or does uh, just by, you know, how much they can communicate about what they're doing in layman's terms and quickly, you know? Yeah, I, I would, I would agree with that. I think, and you kind of see it in modern day coaching. You're talking about how they have to get coaches who can convey this data to the players. That's a large part of it is like, can you make things, you know, digestible to the average person quickly, right? Part of that mm -hmm. comes from coaching and another part comes in the media as you, as you just, or in writing as well. You know, do you, if you had to pick, yeah, if you had to pick one form of communication that you're like really passionate about, like if you only, this was the only way you could communicate for the rest of your life, what way would you pick? Hmm. This might surprise you, but I've really enjoyed TV. <laughs> really? Interesting. Yeah. And, and I guess I'll include YouTube or whatever. I mean, I just, you know, spoken, like spoken, but visual as well. And the reason is, uh, A, I think when people come together to make something that's that requires that much production and requires that much investment like TV or, or even a good YouTube show, they prepare. It's prepared conversation. They, they make notes. They have stuff that's ready. They have things they want to say, but they also react. You start to see people's facial reactions to each other. You can feed off each other. And then you can actually show something if you want to describe, like if I was going to describe to you Seam Shifted Wake and you made me use just the written word, uh, that would be harder than if I could talk to you and then also show you a video of, uh, of the, uh, of Seam Shifted Wake. You know what I mean? Like, so like something like a YouTube podcast or a YouTube show or, or TV show, something that's the visual form. I actually, I think that has the most power, the most uh, possible power for communication. I love it. Ryan, any final questions or notes? Uh, I guess really like the last thing that comes to mind here, because this entire conversation is obviously like we've shifted more to a journalism um, perspective is like, I'm a fan who talks about the Yankees, right? Like, obviously that's a difficult, like that's difficult because you want to be, a, you obviously want to be a fan, but you also want to be objective. Like, what would you say is the best advice you could give for anyone, not just myself um, that, you know, wants to cover their favorite team or wants to cover a team um, and wants to tiptoe that line of not trying to be too much of a fan um, and also remaining objective. Well, the, the hopeful thing is that what you know about a single team is better than what I know about all 30. <laughs> like, that is a true thing. Like, you can know something deeper because you are deep in it. So I would say take some, you know, uh, take some pride and some knowledge out of the fact that, like, you uh, are going to be a deep diver and you're going to know your subject really well. Um, and then I would say beyond that, um, you know, you, you can ride with a passion and, and, and let that be. And um, I think just come as you are. There's a space now in the media for people who do have an attachment to a team, but also provide analysis. Um, and, and no matter what you think of Bill Simmons, but, you know, he kind of opened the door a little bit where. John Boy, you know, those guys, uh, they do have certain fandom attached to them, you know, but they they can communicate and, and analyze. Uh, so it's just I think that the, the, the hardest thing is just you got to keep you got to keep your analytical chops. You got to be able to look at it and say true things and not get too angry about last night's game or, you know, too up and down and who we should fire and this and that. 
just kind of uh, try to find a little bit of objectivity, a little bit of analysis uh, beyond just the, because that, that sort of reactionary everyday thing, that's a fan thing. It can get in the way of your analysis. And, um, and there's a little bit, there's, a, there's other places for that. At the park is a great place to be reactionary. <laughs> Boo somebody, yell, you know, that's a great place to be emotional. Uh, in a podcast, um, I don't know, it's my personal preference that I'd rather see you find a way to walk that line and be analytical while also being a fan. I appreciate that so much. <laughs> I, I, love, I, mean, I, I love that answer. The, 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 you've also got like call talk talk radio is a good place to to, to go and yell you know <laughs> there's yeah. places for all these things <laughs> on that note you know thank you so much for joining us uh truly i mean learned a lot in this conversation you know again we have a massive amount of respect for what you do with the athletic and what you've done across baseball every time you write something every time you do a podcast every time you go on tv uh, I learned something. The first time I ever actually uh, got introduced to your work, I don't know if you remember, but you were at the 2018 uh, spring training Sabre seminar giving a present. You were giving a talk about how to incorporate analytics on a roundtable uh, in media. And I was like, man, this Eno guy is really goddamn smart. And that was when I discovered who you were. Uh, and then you know, we met at the winter meetings a couple of years ago and everything. And you know, you've been very nice. And you know, I wish you nothing but continued success in this industry. So thank you very much for joining us. Well, thanks for the kind words. And, uh... Of course. We'll be uh, right back after this. And we're back. We just had Eno Saros of The Athletic on with us. Ryan, I, that was a fantastic conversation for our first guest podcast. What do you think? It was awesome. I mean, I, I think we got to talk also just or not just not as much from my perspective talking, but in a sense of like getting having someone like, Eno come on and explain a lot of things that, you know, there aren't like clear answers on. Right. Like you're not there aren't many public forums for you to find um, you know, information on things like, hey, like I, I, I wasn't really aware of um just how few people are involved in the baseball operation conversation, like four to 10, or like, I think he said four to 10 or sometimes even four eight. to six. Yeah. Like that's, yeah. that's a really small number. That's a very small group of people. Um, And just thinking, and also all the moving parts too. Like he, like there are, and I know we actually kind of talked about this, like off the podcast um, about like, if there were two expansion teams, how many, like just how many jobs would open up immediately. I mean, it gets down to the, so the very fine details, right? Who does the groundwork at like, you know, the high A stadium or who does, um, you know, ticket sales for double A, right? Like all that stuff. There is a lot of, there are a lot of jobs and roles in baseball that aren't just like people just assume, oh, I work, you work for this team. So you're figuring out, oh, is this guy going to sign with us? How much money should we give this guy? Who are we trading this and that? Like it's they so much know. more complicated than that. Yeah. That was one of the big ones for me. Yeah. His, his, his in-depth look at the way a front office works was really good i i enjoyed obviously we focused pretty heavily on pitching and player development in this conversation but i really the the line that i liked a lot was two things one it takes a, it takes a group to be really good at player development he talked about like why do teams you know i asked why do teams not all do this well because it's hard right and i thought that was a good perspective of like better than just well the owners are cheap no it's because like yeah certainly that's probably a part of it but like it takes a lot of people being really good at this in order to be good at player development 
you takes a whole organization to be good at player development. The other thing that kind of, you know, stuck out to me was his comments about how he thinks like growth mindset is almost like a trap, right? Like you keep learning because as he said, right now we know more than what we did five years ago. It's foolish to think that in five years, we won't know more than what we know right now. So you keep learning. So a growth mindset is kind of almost, a, again, like a trap in a way. Like you can't ever get pigeonholed into one thing. You have to kind of keep going back to that. I did think it was interesting that he thought that the Yankees maybe become had become too focused on, you know, trying to hit the ball hard and not chasing. Um, and maybe they got too focused on that and that could be part of the problem. That was interesting. But um, overall, I mean, I think that's a fantastic give, you know, look at what he says about a player development, uh, you know, department and everything. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think the idea of like having the whole organization buy in, like, I, I mean, I've I've kind of had the understanding uh, at times, like, hey, maybe an organization suggests something and, you know, it just doesn't translate. And then another organization does that and it works. Right. Um, but, you know, the idea of you, you really have to get everybody to buy in. Right. Like it's it, it's not as simple as they, you know, the general manager doesn't want to. Right. Or the manager doesn't want to or the hitting coach is an idiot or whatever it may be. It's like, sure, the ge general manager could want, you know, the organization to look like this. Right. But if all of the coaches and all of the players and everybody involved aren't all bought in, it's it's not going to translate perfectly. Um, it, manager, right? Like the manager, I'm, the manager gets be like, hey, you know, I really you know, I really like. I'd really like if we could be able to, you know, drive the ball in the air more. But if the hitting coach is like, no, you know, we want a more gap to the gap, you know, we know what we're talking about kind of thing. It's not going to translate, right? You don't know who suggests what. You don't know how divided an organization may be internally. There's a lot. I think the big thing here is there is a lot that goes on behind closed doors that we're just not privy to. And that, you know, making those like day to day or week to week or month to month, um, you know, assumptions about a general manager or an organization not really knowing what that decision-making process looks like. Like, yeah, we're flying in the dark a lot here as, as fans and as from the outside perspective. So it does make it really hard to make those calls or make those judgments. If you're not in those conversations, if you kind of get what I'm saying here. Yeah. I thought uh, he kind of says that point, like everybody has to do it. Right. Like he talked about that in regards to like, you know, is this max effort, you know, leading to injuries for pitchers, which he kind of said, yes, but it's not really that important. Like, it, there are other things that factors here. And again, as he said, like there's no pitchers to lower their velocity would have to buy into that idea, but that's going to cost them money. So why would they do that? And then for coaches to buy into it, it's like, dude, we're not going to win. Like there's just, again, it takes an organizational buy-in to do anything. And I thought that was a good point that he said, um, you know, he also talked about how we just use and train pitchers differently. Um, I did, I did enjoy him saying like as many guys as there are working to try and get the most velocity out of a pitcher, there's just as many guys trying to do it in the healthiest way possible. I did enjoy him, you know, offering that clarification because that is an important thing that needs to be discussed is yes, we are trying to get guys to throw harder, but we are trying to keep them healthy while, while we do it as somebody who does that for a living. Yeah. Like I'm not trying to injure guys while I'm trying to get them to throw gas. Like it's just just not how it works the, the hope is that when you know i'm telling working with this kid that he's getting stronger i'm doing everything i can to keep him healthy and they're starting to throw harder at the same time um i did enjoy what he had to say he did use seam shifted takes that was big for the brand right there 
but um, I did enjoy what he had to say about scene shift to take, though, in, in his talk about change-ups. Yeah, I mean, number one, to kind of, like, wrap up the velocity point, it's also interesting. The first thought I had was there is going to be – if if somehow, some way, every organization bought into let's make guys throw, hard, throw less hard, the Rays would totally be the team that's like, okay, everyone bought into it. Now we're going to just ramp up velocity and we'll just dominate the league or whatever it may be. And number two, how do you hold guys accountable for that? Like, imagine if you – like, what are you going to do? Tell Garrett Cole, like, you just threw 98? Uh, yeah, you're you're coming out the game. I'm sorry. Like, that's unacceptable. Um, You're going to get hurt, says right. the guy, to the guy who, okay, knock on wood, you know, has had good injury history. Yeah, it just wouldn't, like, it, I just don't know how that gets implemented. But the other thing you mentioned with, like, the change-ups and, like, first off, seam shifted takes. I, I I really, I was proud of that name. I was very proud of that You've name. done well. You've done uh, well. That's, like, the only, that's, like, one of the few creative things I've done in my lifetime um, of 18 years, which not impressive. But anyways, back to the change-up point. I thought it was interesting because... You know, really, I mean, I've, I've seen some things about like, oh, could splitters get an uptick? I mean, I know like Joe Ryan added the split change and that's really helped him. Um, But you, like the off speed pitch in general, like it's an odd pitch. I mean, I don't I kind of always assume that's a tough pitch to throw because I feel like anyone who's tried to throw change ups like it's a it's not a it's a field pitch, right? That's a pitch that a, like it requires it, a ton of field. Yeah, like some days you just don't have it. And I don't think like there are days where you don't have your fastball, you don't have your breaking ball, but it's different than when you don't have your changeup. When you don't have your changeup, it's unusable. You can use a fastball you don't fully have. You cannot use a changeup you can't fully have, you don't fully have. And so it's interesting because he was also talking about like having spe- like certain organizations have specific guys, might have specific guys. Um I, I think he said there was like one organization that so he said surprise us yeah <laughs> that has a guy that's specifically looking at pitch yeah. shapes or, or specifically seam shifted wake so that'll be interesting development to see how like other organizations do they bring in guys who focus more on that do they bring in specialists um you know if that off-speed pitch is if an off-speed pitch in general is that next big pitch that follows or causes a revolution or whatever it may be i, I just i wonder what it looks like like i don't know like it's kind of got because you think like ian hamilton has that weird slider change up thing that he Slambio, has as he right it, like right? And, and he and it can go from like either having cut or arm side movement like is that what that future looks like i don't i don't really know i i don't and i, I think that's like a whole that that could be an entire podcast episode in and of itself i think just talking about what does like a future changeup look like? But I don't know. I think there was a lot of interesting. And then like the Braves, the Rays, the the Brewers all being involved towards the top there in, in run value. He did give us the asterisk of that's only major league baseball. And we have to keep that in mind because you're going to be acquiring guys from free agency trades. Doesn't it's take a little account. less organizational influence there. Just a little. Right. But it's still interesting. I, I still think that that's something that is going to, I'm going to be thinking about for the next few days, at the very least. Right. It's also you have to consider like for Atlanta, Max Freed has a decent change up, right? And they also like I think they have a reliever that throws one a lot too. But Milwaukee has Devin Williams, whose airbender falls under a changeup. Tampa Bay has Jason Adam, whose throws a lot of changeups as well. McClanahan, um, his changeup. They kind of McCl- his. Yeah, and McClanahan's change up as well. Um I, again, overall, just a, a very interesting, fascinating conversation. You know, really appreciative of Eno coming on, you know. Appreciate him taking the time. Uh, I just want to end on this point. I love whenever somebody brings up KPI, uh, key performance index. It just, I don't know, it just warms my heart a little bit to like hear that phrase. It, maybe it's just because I'm a giant nerd, but like I hear the word KPI, I hear the phrase KPI, and I'm just like, yes, we are talking about things that make sense to me. 
I'm I'm stealing that phrase. I I've I, not that I've never heard of it, but like I don't think I I don't think I truly understood what it was. So like I've heard the phrase before, but I'm like I haven't heard it full, like applied like a sentence, pro- like not properly. But you know what I'm you kind of get what I'm saying, right? Like you hear yeah. a phrase a couple times, you're like, yeah, I know what this is, or like I understand what that phrase is kind of getting at, but I don't fully understand what it means. So hearing him talk about that in depth, I'm totally stealing that. No, I'm not. It's not stealing. It's just learning. But um, no, like it it, it was interesting too because he was talking about how like it's important when it comes to like promotions, like uh, really smart organizations are looking at those key performance indicators. Like, Hey, you know, this is where your swing decisions are at, or, you know, this is where your stuff is at, or this is where your movement profiles are at. It's not just as much, Oh, this guy is X age doing this at that level. Boom. He's, he's, he's gotta be promoted. And that changes my perspective too. Cause you know me, I'm a big, like this guy's gotta get promoted. This guy's gotta get promoted. That guy's gotta get moved up. Like, I, you know, I mean, I'm looking at this wrong then, right? Like I'm looking at this wrong. If all I'm looking at is, he his strikeout to walk rates that cool promote him right like that's that's clearly I'm clearly behind the eight ball there and so I think that's definitely something I'm going to be uh able to take away from this as well yeah it's it it is interesting you know the organizations that say like the results aren't really all that <laughs> it is kind of funny hearing that and then talking about the Yankees that was that just made me laugh a little bit um but you know the results are not as necessarily as important as like, are they doing the things that you think lead to big league success? Um, and if they do, then like you promote them. Um, and that can, that can cause into question of like why some guys get promoted and why some guys don't. Um, but I overall really, really phenomenal conversation as always learned a lot. Um, I, I will probably be taking that growth mindset into interviews with me with his thought process on it. Um, but you know, we want to thank you guys for listening. Of course, Ryan, thank you for joining me. Uh, we hope you enjoyed our first special episode with our guest, Eno Saras, today. Um, we will be having more of these kinds of episodes in the future. We have some interesting uh, guests lined up to come on the pod in the future. Um, we hope that you enjoy those conversations. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the pod. Uh, thank you very much for listening and have a good rest of your day. Mm-hmm.